Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Season 3 of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Leah, try this thought experiment on for size. I know it's hard, but can you imagine living in a society that is ostensibly a democracy, but secret forces are working behind the scenes to manipulate events? What if, and hear me out, our intelligence agencies are off the hook and basically do what they like with little or no oversight? What if the president is a criminal and would do anything to stay in power? What if politicians are assassinated not by lone crazed gunmen, but by political enemies or corporate interests? It's really hard to fathom, right? (laughs) I detect just a little bit of sarcasm, Brian, and rightfully so. But the thing is, is that there was a time when revelations of government misdeeds and horror of horrors, a dishonest president, were deeply disturbing. By the early 1970s, I think most Americans were pretty cynical, but also like kind of shell-shocked, right? I mean, they'd now been conditioned to believe or to understand that we'd been lied to about Vietnam, most notably in the early 70s. But Watergate and stunning exposés into CIA misdeeds since the beginning of the Cold War really took things to a, a whole new level. And and so like we're going to be doing elsewhere in this season, we want to look at how Hollywood took notice of this. And in this episode, we're going to see how this anxiety and outrage gets reflected in a bunch of political thrillers that all came out in a very short number of years. Yeah, I really love this era of Hollywood in general, but this period of like the mid 70s and the political thriller is, of course, basically current events for them. And but we can look back on it and find echoes of it in our own time for sure. We had a lot to choose from, but we decided on in chronological order, The Parallax View, directed by Alan J. Pakula, Three Days of the Condor, directed by Sidney Pollack, who also directed Redford in The Way We Were. And finally, the classic docudrama, very much based on real events, All the President's Men, also directed by Pakula and starring Redford. These films were all released between 1974 and 1976, and it is clear our two directors are capitalizing on the zeitgeist. And that includes leaving audiences without much hope in the end. Our nice white guy protagonists, if they survive or win Pulitzers, probably can't change anything. How very 1970s. (laughs) Yeah. The films take direct aim at our institutions and find them wanting. Or, more accurately, take aim at the entire infrastructure of society. Well, capitalist Western society. Corporations. Presidents. The CIA. You name it. And it goes back to the unfettered growth of executive power and the national security state, which in turn goes back to right after World War II with the development of what Eisenhower comes to call the military industrial complex. Everything we built to fight the Cold War went off and did its own thing. This is the shocking news. This expansive Cold War bureaucracy serves itself. Yeah, I mean, we've created the Frankenstein here, or Frankenstein's monster. Now, we've been talking about certain foundational documents or spectacles, like you just mentioned, things like uh, um, the National Security Act, NSC 68. Um, We've talked about the Watergate hearings and the Pentagon Papers, things like that. But these films in particular really revolve around two spectacles that like the January 6 hearings, uh, captured people's attentions, although back then there's a lot less to kind of uh, compete with, um, the Watergate hearings and the so-called Church Committee hearings, named for Senator Frank Church, a Democrat from Ohio. Idaho. 
Uh, it was formerly known as the United States Select. Wait a minute. There yeah. was a Democrat in Idaho? <laughs> yeah, in the before times. Yeah, in the before times. And he was like progressive, if you can believe it. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, this, and he had his own name on the committee, the church committee was really the United States Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities. Um, so, and that, between those two hearings, 1975 was called the Year of Intelligence because this committee, along with the Pike Committee, which was in the House, and the Rockefeller Commission, all unearthed decades of abuse by the CIA, the FBI, the National Security Agency, and the IRS. Now, these public hearings are why we have the permanent select committees in Congress today. So how do we characterize lies agreed upon about films that are themselves about lies and liars working in the shadows? Are the lies what our filmmakers expose? Or do these mostly fictional plots actually contribute to a false consciousness. It's a little of both. Yeah. So our first lie agreed upon is exactly what you just said. The Cold War Leviathan has undermined our democracy, essentially turning politics into a shadow play in which the winners and losers are predetermined. These three films make it seem like you shouldn't even bother trying. Yeah. Or at least, you know, certainly two of them. The second lie applies to each film, but especially the parallax view and all the president's men. And that's the power of journalism, uh, which is something we also covered in our first season. Intrepid journalists can break through the matrix, so to speak, and see the inner workings of the big lies, the deception. Can they, though? I mean, we do have all the president's men, in a sense, as kind of the outlier in these three films as, as, as actually making a difference. But can journalists make a difference? And at least in today's environment, how do you tell the difference between a journalist and a political operative. So before we tackle the lies, let's do some recaps of some films you've probably saw way back then, but uh, you could probably use a refresher. Alan Pakula's 1974 film, The Parallax View, is based on the novel by Lauren Singer and stars Warren Beatty as journalist Joe Frady and a bunch of great character actors you might recognize, including Paula Prentice, uh, you know, she did Where the Boys Are and Catch-22. William Daniel, Daniels, whom we had the pleasure of discussing last season, is John Adams in 1776. And Hume Cronin, who was already a pretty old actor in this film with a ton of credits. But, um, you know, he's married to Jessica Tandy, starred in, with her in Cocoon, if you remember that. Alan Pakula directed To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962 and went on to do two more classics, All the President's Men in 1976 and Sophie's Choice in 1982. He won Best Adapted Screenplay for that. Yeah, I actually, that was when I was looking, you know, we were looking at all of the uh, credits and everything. That was a reminder for me. I'd forgotten that he'd done Sophie's Choice. The story of Parallax View begins with a memorable assassination scene atop the Space Needle in Seattle. Uh, TV journalist Lee Carter witnesses presidential candidate Charles Carroll gunned down by a waiter who then falls to his death off of the roof of the uh, the uh, Space Needle, which I have to say gave me like vertigo just watching that. And I was trying to figure out how they managed to do that. Anyway, a second waiter leaves the scene unnoticed. A committee, we assume Congress, uh, although there's this rather sort of Nazi-esque kind of emblem above yeah, their heads, yeah, which I'm sure is not a, <laughs> an accident, an accident on the part of the, the set decorator um, or the set designer uh, decides that. So this committee decides, you know, as with, you know, the Kennedy assassination years earlier, that the killing was the work of a lone assassin. Three years later, Carter visits her ex-boyfriend, a kind of rakish, small-time Oregon newspaper reporter, Joe Frady, who had been at the Space Needle when this happened. She claims 
others must have been behind the Carroll assassination because six of the witnesses to the killing died and she is terrified that she will be next. Frady does not take her seriously, however, and then Carter is soon found dead of a supposed drug overdose. Right. So now Frady is, you know, he's feeling guilty about Lee's death. So he pursues the investigation on his own and discovers a connection to the mysterious Parallax Corporation. Now, there's lots of good journalistic detective work here. We don't want to spoil it all, but just, but suffice to say, you know, Joe, Joe learns that this corporation recruits and entrains assassins. Joe tries to convince his skeptical newspaper editor, Bill Rentles, well, that's Hume Croman, that he's on to a big story and wants to connect the dots of all the witnesses who have died and, uh, you know, so showing this pattern here. But Rentles refuses to support him because of his past kind of crazy exploits. But Bill winds up dead, too. Frady seeks out a local psychology professor who assesses the Parallax Corporation's personality tests and tells him bluntly that this is a profiling exam to identify psychopaths. Yes, and of course, Joe takes this, the test. Well, he doesn't take it. They actually get a handy psychopath to take the test so that the answers look really promising. And sure enough, he gets himself recruited by Parallax. The... <laughs> The scene where he watches this montage of images to determine if he'd be a good killer, like this is, I mean, I'm not even sure if that's where he's, they're determining whether he'd be a good killer or if that's supposed to be part of his brainwashing, because I guess they're reading his heart rate and things while they're doing it. So it's not quite clear, but anyway, this scene where he's shown all of these images to, you know, to see whether he would he would make a good assassin is uh, really kind of a la Clockwork Orange. You know, this sort of he's sat there uh, in this big chair, forced to watch the screen. Also tied into this is this sense of kind of technology and what technology is capable of. And so listen to the eerie instructions that are given to Joe, because that also feels like a a kind of a, a reference being made to Hal in 2001. Welcome to the testing room of the Parallax Corporation's Division of Human Engineering. You will now please cross to the chair. And you will sit down. Make yourself comfortable. And be sure to place each one of your hands on the box on either side of the chair. Making sure that each one of your fingers is on one of the white rectangles. Just sit back. Nothing is required of you except to observe the visual materials that are presented to you. Be sure to keep your fingers on the box at all times. All right. We hope you find the test a pleasant experience. What follows, accompanied by the saccharine music, is a very disturbing montage of sex, violence, weird patriotic imagery, etc. Joe is undercover now, pretending he's been successfully trained slash brainwashed as an assassin. But really, what he does is tries to stop the assassination of a senator. But he gets scapegoated as the real killer. And so Joe is shot by Parallax agents, pretending to be Secret Service. This is how they cover their tracks. The Parallax assassins kill the man about to expose the whole thing. The film comes full circle as the same committee that began the film meets and names Joe as yet another lone gunman motivated by leftist politics. Not to be outdone in the paranoia department, or dashing leading men of the 70s for that matter, is Sidney Pollack's 1975 film, Three Days of the Condor, based on the James Grady novel, Six Days of the Condor. It's a brilliant and absorbing political thriller set in New York and Washington uh, about a CIA, CIA analyst whose entire section is murdered to cover up a nefarious plot. 
Pollock pairs up with his muse, Robert Redford, once again. These two worked on seven movies together, The Way We Were, Out of Africa, and All the President's Men for just a few. Uh, the film also stars Faye Dunaway, Cliff Robertson, and Max von Sydow. So Robert Redford's character is Joe Turner, and he's a bookish CIA analyst codenamed Condor. And so he works at the quote-unquote, American Literary Historical Society in New York City, this very unpossessing brownstone, which is actually a clandestine CIA office that examines books, newspapers, and magazines from around the world for word patterns, secret messages, you know, whatever. Turner files a report to CIA headquarters about a thriller novel that has strange plot elements. This has happened before the movie opens. One day, he leaves through a back door to get lunch, and armed men, led by the menacing Max von Sydow, enter the office and murder the other six staffers. Turner returns to find his co-workers dead. Frightened, he grabs a gun, and suddenly becomes a field agent with no one to trust. Yeah, so he's a, you know, a spy out in the cold here. So Turner reaches out to his superiors and begins to suspect there is a CIA within the CIA that has all the real power. After another attempt on his life, uh, Turner you know, runs into Kathy Hale, played by Faye Dunaway, who's just a, a random, beautiful bystander, and basically forces her to hide him from these rogue agents trying to kill him. He gets her to trust him, and and over time, not that much time, but there's only more, three days. He yeah, doesn't exactly. have a lot of time. There's only three days. If only they gave. He him, doesn't even have the six. The six of the novel, <laughs> like why not give him that? But you know, he he, he has to work his magic. <laughs> so between the two of them, they figure out more layers of the conspiracy, which involves really a plan for the CIA to seize oil fields around the world. Turner's report about the novel, that thriller novel inadvertently shed light on the plan. So that's why they kind of wiped out the entire unit. So in this clip, Turner confronts the CIA officer who thought up the oil plan. So let's, and this is when you start to see, you know, Turner kind of put everything together once he meets one of the people in charge here. What does operations care about a bunch of goddamn books? A book in Dutch. A book out of Venezuela. Mystery stories in Arabic. Wait, what the hell is so important about oil fields? Oil. That's it, isn't it? This whole damn thing was about oil. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, it's so funny listening to that clip, isn't it? Because for us today, we really kind of have to chuckle at the naivete. It's like, really? Oil? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, they're after oil? You In know, the 70s, they we, care about oil? <laughs> so yeah, like you think we, we don't do that sort of thing every day. I mean, the, and this is the thing is that the church committee, which is of the same moment, featured far worse plots than this fictional one. So in some ways, the movie... And the, the book that it was based on is already kind of out of date. The, the big reveal isn't that surprising, despite it being a very good movie in, other, in every other way. Eventually, Turner reluctantly sends Kathy away for her own safety, realizing he has to go it alone, and it probably won't end well. The film ends with Robert Redford standing outside the New York Times building, meeting Cliff Robertson. He tells Robertson he's given the story to the Times, so there's no point in trying to silence him. Let's listen to that exchange. Boy, what is it with you people? You think not getting caught on a lie is the same thing as telling the truth? No. It's simple economics. Today it's oil, right? In 10 or 15 years, food, plutonium, and maybe even sooner. Now, what do you think the people are going to want us to do then? Ask them. Not now. Then. Ask them when they're running out. Ask them when there's no heat in their homes and they're cold. Ask them when their engines stop. Ask them when people who've never known hunger start going hungry. You want to know something? They won't want us to ask them. They'll just want us to get it for them. Seven people killed Higgins. The company didn't order it. Atwood did. 
Atwood did. And who the hell is Atwood? He's you. He's all you guys. Seven people killed. And you play fucking games. Right. And the other side does too. That's why we can't let you stay outside. Well, go on home, Higgins. You know where we are. Just look around. They've got it. That's where they ship from. They got all of it. What? What did you do? I told them a story. Oh, you. You poor dumb son of a bitch. You're about to be a very lonely man. It didn't have to end this way. Of course it did. Hey, Turner. How do you know they'll print it? So we're left at the end of the movie, not knowing if Redford will live or die, but also not knowing if any of his efforts will end up being worth it. So for those of us keeping score, the two films out of the three we're looking at today, the first one ends with our um, plucky reporter actually being killed or having uncovered this truth. In the second one, we have our plucky, nerdy, honest CIA operative needing to disappear into the streets, but being told, in essence, that not only will his story likely never see the light of day, but he will probably not live for many more days. But as we turn to our final film, things are a little bit more optimistic. Our final film is very well known, All the President's Men also directed by Alan J. Pakula in 1976 and based on the 1974 book by the same name by, of course, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. What differentiates this film from the others is, of course, that it also that it's nonfiction. But that doesn't make the story any less disturbing to viewers who just two years earlier watched the Watergate hearings on primetime television. Yeah, All the President's Men really is the, the gold standard for films about journalism. And it also has this amazing cast. We got Robert Redford, as we said, as Bob Woodward, Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein. We have Jason Robards as legendary Washington Post editor Ben Bradley and Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat, who we now know is FBI Associate Director Mark Felt. No one knew who he was then. Uh, the film won a few Oscars, including Robards for Best Supporting Actor and some technical awards. But the film's legacy really only grew in stature over time precisely because it you know, captured this historic moment so well. In 2010, the film was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. No one's going to doubt that. The plot is essentially what happened after June 17th, 1972, when five burglars were arrested breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate, which was a building. I think actually a lot of people of the later generations aren't even necessarily sure what Watergate is, but it is, it's a, a yep, building. still there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Still there. Uh, the next morning, the Washington post assigns new reporter, Bob Woodward to the local courthouse to cover the story, which is considered to be of minor importance. Yeah. And that's where he, you know, he learns the details that the, the five men, four of whom are Cuban Americans from Miami, uh, came in to the break-in with you know, electronic bugging equipment, and they somehow get this high-priced country club attorney. Um, and at the arraignment, you know, James McCord, who's like the ringleader with the four Cubans, identifies himself in court as having recently left the CIA. And the others, the Cubans, are also revealed to have CIA ties. So that's going to pique in people's interest. And Woodward connects the burglars to Howard Hunt, an employee of Nixon's White House, Counsel Charles Colson, who, by the way, guess what, is another former CIA employee. Yeah, and it's really amazing because it all starts with him just being in this courtroom for what is supposed to be just this kind of very, you know, garden variety arraignment hearing. And he's like, wait a minute, why are you know, Cuban Americans like breaking into the Democratic headquarters and why are they got this high priced attorney? 
spending, you know, and so then it's off to the races because Carl Bernstein is assigned to help Woodward. The two of them do not want to work together, but they are sort of forced to. And the duo begin to uncover layer after layer of connections to the Nixon White House, principally through the forever aptly (laughs) named Creep, the Committee to Reelect the President. And then Deep Throat reveals that White House Chief of Staff H.R. Halderman masterminded the Watergate break-in and the cover-up. Here's um, now one of the famous scenes here with Deep Throat outlining the depth of the conspiracy to Bob Woodward in that underground parking garage. You let Haldeman slip away. Yes. You've done worse than let Haldeman slip away, get people feeling sorry for him. I didn't think that was possible. In a conspiracy like this, you build from the outer edges and you go step by step. If you shoot too high and miss, everybody feels more secure. You put the investigation back months. Yes, we know that. And if we're wrong, we're resigning. Were we wrong? You'll have to find that out, won't you? Listen, I'm tired of your chicken shit games. I don't want hints. I need to know what you know. It was a Halderman operation. The whole business was run by Halderman, the money, everything. Won't be easy getting at him. He was insulated. You'll have to find out how. Mitchell started doing covert stuff before anyone else. The list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community. FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. Cover-up had little to do with Watergate. It was mainly to protect covert operations it leads everywhere get out your notebook there's more your lives are in danger yeah and this is one of the things that makes the the movie so good but also the book that it comes from is that what you've got here is actually a real life narrative that is as gripping and in some ways as hard to believe as what we see in the parallax view or three days of the condor. It just, it would not be out of place if this was in fact, not a fact-based thriller, but was a fiction thriller. And here's where I think it's interesting to compare the two films done by Alan Pakula, because you can sense the style of the films are similar. Also that there's so much emphasis on like ambient noises and whether it's typewriter, whether, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's of course a lot of great dialogue in all the president's men, but very little dialogue in general in the parallax. He kind of lets the atmosphere weigh on you, and and he does that in both films, um, where he you know this this idea that humans are caught in a uh, a world of of information and swirling noises that from a modern in a modern environment that that kind of overwhelm them, and and I think that's really. Uh, Interesting to compare when you have one that's like fiction and then one that's nonfiction and he has the same way of telling the story and putting people in, in, a, in a dangerous environment by kind of implying they're not really in, fully in control of things. You know, one of the things about this era in filmmaking is that it was an era when because the technology was getting so much uh, more sophisticated uh, for filmmakers that they could take this much kind of grittier out in real spaces uh, kind of approach and that you get this sense that people really are walking down the street and and that that people's dialogue is being just caught you know along with all of these ambient sounds because because this is real and it's really happening and it's right there you know we're really moving out of that earlier era of things being much more staged and stagey. And I think that that contributes to the sense of, you know, in the case of Parallax View, this could really be happening. And in the case of all the president's men, this really happened. And you would never know it because you're just at these big, vast expanse of spaces, whether it's it's a city block or whether it's like in Parallax View, like in the middle of this 
you know, in vast open countryside, it's just, you're, you're kind of meaningless. That's maybe it's highlighting the fact that you're, you're not, you know, you'll never know really what's happening because we're just little specks. And that's, that's also like a really seventies way of, of, of getting toward things. So all the president's men ends with the publication of the full story, the one they researched so diligently and all the various sleuthing they did on January 20th, 1973. And so that, you know, they, it's a good place to end it. But of course, that's just the beginning. They show the montage of the real footage of what follows all the hearings, all the, you know, the announced resignations, all the way up to the, inaugura the inauguration of Gerald Ford 18 months later from the publication of that story. January 20th, 1973. Let's revisit our lies agreed upon and dig a little deeper into this incredibly important time frame, basically encompassing Nixon's truncated second term between 1972 and, and, and 76. Remember, these three political thrillers were released between 74 and 76. The first lie is about the national security establishment as the all-knowing, all-seeing monstrosity pulling the strings behind the scenes of our democracy. Did we create this Frankenstein's monster? Is it really so formidable? Well, yes and no. Yeah, and the second lie is about journalism slicing through the bullshit and exposing the Leviathan for the outraged public to see. Did journalists perform heroically in the 1970s? Or should we be as cynical as Cliff Robertson is to Robert Redford at the end of Three Days of the Condor? Well, yes and no. Unsurprisingly, you know, these lies are interconnected because we only learn about the abuses of power from these agencies through journalists. Seymour Hirsch, Woodward and Bernstein, Ben Bradley's Washington Post a few years earlier than that with the Pentagon Papers. You know, it takes whistleblowers and brave journalists, and since 9-11, I think, it's increasingly harder to find both, uh, to get to the truth of things. And the, and the ones we get, you know, the whistleblowers we are getting these days aren't exactly model citizens. Think Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, and hell, throw in Glenn, Glenn Greenwald now. I mean, these are not movie star idols to most of us. Yeah. So, you know, let's go back a little and get some context on the two media events that clearly inspired our films, our three films, uh, the Watergate hearings and the Church Committee hearings, both primetime events like the January 6th Committee hearings airing right now as we are recording this. The media landscape is vastly different now, though, and, and we need to uh, remind people of that. You know, at the time of these uh, hearings, at the time of Watergate, you had three channels to choose from, um, four if you counted PBS. Um, and so people were watching, right? I mean, I remember being so ticked off because it was, you know, summertime and I wanted to be able to like watch more TV than I normally would because I didn't have to go to school. And oh, every day it was these like boring men in this room going on and on and on. That was what was on the TV set. There was, there was nowhere else to turn. Whereas of course today uh, our media landscape means that it's quite possible for everybody to utterly ignore the January 6th hearings. And even one of our supposed news outlets <laughs> is doing yes. a very good job of not covering them. So, you know, it's, it's, it is really uh, very different. And so people can and will tune out now, but it just simply was not the case in the 70s. Yeah, you're right. And it is, uh, it is frightening to think that something as important as the January 6th hearings are just going to be part of the white noise that is the current media landscape. Uh, so let's go back to a time when you couldn't really avoid it. And I'd like to play a clip from CIA director Richard Helms, who truly is one of the most deep statey kind of guys you could ever imagine. Like he's definitely a Hollywood creation, except he was real. And here he is uh, performing for the Watergate committee. He's here. He's being questioned by Senator Fred Thompson, 
we all know as an actor from Law and Order and a bunch of movies. You know, but he, you know, previously he had a career as a lawyer assigned to the Watergate committee. And get this, he's a Republican. And one of the things worth noting in both sets of hearings, both Watergate and the Church Committee, is just how bipartisan they actually are. Here's Director Helms grandstanding and sneering his way through Fred Thompson's very appropriate questions about CIA links to the break-in. I assured Mr. Gray that the CIA had no involvement in the break-in, no involvement whatever. And it was my preoccupation consistently from then to this time to make this point and to be sure that everybody understands it. It doesn't seem to get across very well for some reason, but the agency had nothing to do with the Watergate break-in. I hope all the newspaper men in the room hear me clearly now. Well, it seems to me, Mr. Helms, that there might well have been concern as to the role of the FBI uh, or the CIA by all parties involved at uh, this particular time, uh, right after the break-in in June of 72, if in fact one of the persons who had broken in was at that time on a retainer by the CIA. Uh, did you know at the time of your conversation with Mr. Hall and Mr. Ehrlichman on the 23rd that Mr. Martinez was in fact on retainer? I don't recall. I imagine I may have. But that doesn't mean that the CIA was involved in the burglary. No, sir. No, sir. I'm, I'm I, not, I don't uh, think you ought to put words in my mouth. I didn't think I was. McCord was a former CIA agent. Hunt was a former CIA agent. Uh, Martinez was on retainer at the time of the break-in. Now, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yep. He's a slippery one. And, and, of course, that's why Helms enjoys the reputation he has today of being one of the more freewheeling cowboys CIA directors the agency ever had. And in part, it's because the culture changed dramatically after he left because of what happened. The, that, that kind of just screw you attitude is, is kind of probably what made him uh, a hero to some at that hearing. But yeah, so when you listen to Richard Helms, it, it doesn't seem like such a stretch to imagine men like him dreaming up the oil field operation in three days of the Condor, or as would be the case with Nixon, you know, placing loyalty to the executive branch over the actual mission of intelligence. You know, we can be shocked by the violent, be violent beginning of Condor, Max von Sydow skulking around with his dead blue eyes, killing names off a list. But the general tone of the film is actually very believable for the mid-1970s. Definitely. So what about the other hearings, the church committee and the others that helped make 1975 the year of intelligence? I would imagine that many people have never heard of the church committee. Here's a clip from C-SPAN commemorating the 40th anniversary of the hearings. The guests are two former councils assigned to the committee, Frederick Schwartz and Elliot Maxwell. They give some really good perspective evaluating the legacy of what the committee accomplished. So let's just start with the basics, Mr. Maxwell. If, if, would you explain really how the church committee got constituted? What was the impetus? Most of it came about because of a series of articles about activities by the intelligence community within the United States, written by Cy Hirsch and followed up by many other people. It was in the context of uh, the post Water, the post-Watergate hearings, resignation of President Nixon, a still continuing concern about the Vietnam War, and the uh, thought that the intelligence agencies were being directed against U.S. citizens led to some public concern and a response from both the Senate and the House to establish uh, special committees to look at the intelligence activities overall. Some people thought maybe we would just expose more bad things by the, about the Nixon administration, but our single most important finding was to say that every one of six presidents, started with, starting with Franklin Roosevelt and running through Nixon, every one of them had abused their secret powers. And by making that broad finding, which I think was our most important, it helped with the internal cohesion of the committee and it helped with its national reputation. Yeah, let's think about that last statement from Frederick Schwartz because it's remarkable. Every president involved in the national security establishment from FDR to Nixon 
abused their power for Democrats to Republicans. That's not surprising, but it does explain you know, the bipartisan nature of these intelligence committees, at least back then, something we probably you know, will never experience again. Although I have to say the January 6th committee might be an exception, at least it appears to, you know, you have some reasonable uh, Republicans on there, but, you know, I, I hope it lasts, but seeing someone like Fred Thompson or John Tower lay into Nixon appointees, like, like this is, you know, that that's something I don't think you, you would see now. And I'd like to get that part of the seventies back if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, the church committee really just exposed what had gone on for 35 years at that point, in essence, giving credibility to the lie agreed upon that this architecture we created to fight World War II and even more so the Cold War serve themselves. I mean, we can understand where it is that people get this notion of a deep state that is, you know, disregards the laws of the land and does whatever they want in order to achieve a political goal and that there's no oversight. These things all sort of reinforce that and and feed a, a paranoia in the general population. So it's it's kind of understandable and hard to refute sometimes when people point to the the threats of the deep state. Of course, you know, I would argue that it all comes down to to degrees, right? I mean, the the fact is is that there is a uh, there is still a difference or at least i think there is between these abuses and some notion of the like illuminati or yeah. something <laughs> right <laughs> yes <laughs> and yeah and, and and i've told this before on earlier podcasts i you know i briefly worked in the intelligence community for 5 years i had all the clearances you could ever imagine and and i and and i i look at these these ideas of a secret deep state that accomplishes a great deal. And I just want to laugh because I was surrounded by like slack bureaucratic idiots or neophytes like myself who had no, who had no idea what the right hand was doing to the, you know, the left hand was doing and the gate. And I guess that's a problem too, but never did I feel like there was some, a super efficient deep state operating behind me because that it was quite the opposite. And, and so I think that's how we have to go to that lie. You know, is there an out of control national security state? Probably because it's so massive. Yeah. But is it as effective as we think it is? Definitely not. You know, thank God for that possibly, but it's still true. In the parallax view, we never really know the identity of the parallax corporation, right? I mean, it could be a CIA front, it could just be, in fact, this kind of shadowy Illuminati kind of group of people. It could be a foreign government. I mean, who knows? The, the point is that you, you never will. And someone like Warren Beatty, as wily and resourceful as he is, the movie tells us that he is no match for the octopus-like, you know, deep state we don't even know why they want these politicians dead, right? I mean, that's one of the really cold and cruel aspects of the film that I think it works really, really well is that they are just assassinated politicians and the committees who declare each assassination an act of a lone gunman. You know, this is obviously referencing the Warren Commission, the Kennedy assassination, but there is not ever a sense of there being a rhyme or reason that can be understood. Yeah, and that's the scariest part of it, really. So in three days of the Condor, the CIA is involved, but it's an even more secret CIA. And that's you know, one of the tropes of the 70s thrillers is that our intelligence and law enforcement agencies have grown so large, they can't even police themselves if they wanted to. Now, think about more contemporary th thrillers like the the Bourne films, you know, based on also Cold War novels. But you no, know, there's always some rogue outfit the le the legitimate CIA isn't aware of. Um, and in All the President's Men, we have a more accurate portrayal of the deep state Leviathan. They can be very Keystone cops, stupid, bumbling, and reckless. But you know their intentions are pretty evil. Now what Watergate showed was just how entitled these guys can be and overconfident. Richard Helms wasn't bothered by the break-in, just that these amateurs 
could never have been trained by him because they screwed up. You know, now, Watergate was was the lawlessness on full display. Now, is it better to have an incompetent intelligence community or a corrupt one that actually pulls the strings? And certainly you can see uh, in the January 6th hearings how much incompetence is on display and how in some cases it's that the incompetence of those who imagine themselves to have a power of a deep state actually bumping up against the just everyday plotting actual competence of career bureaucrats. Each of these films can kind of be read as uh, championing or condemning the political operatives, the lifetime bureaucrats, the intelligence community, the politicians. And, and that's exactly where we are right now. Yeah, and speaking of you know where we are right now, you know, while researching the the subgenre of the paranoid thriller, you know, I came across this really interesting video essay about the parallax view from a director named Karen Kasuma. Now, she has a ton of credits, including the pilot for Yellow Jackets, which I really liked, uh, the film Destroyer with Nicole Kidman, and she's directed episodes of The Man on the High Castle and Billions, you know, all kind of shows that get into power structures and things like that. Now, I think it's worthwhile hearing from an actual artist to kind of better understand why a film like The Parallax View leaves us so chilled. I think this movie is so important because it remains relevant even 35 years later. It's pretty, pretty stunning to me that it has this air of mystery and a sense of unanswered questions that I think for a film today, you could not go without answering. And the fact that the film leaves so much to the viewer to have to sort of tangle with in terms of the paranoia of what would it mean to have corporations essentially responsible for who's in power in government and who lives or dies literally in government and who hires sort of secret armies to carry out their dirty deeds. I think that question remains even more relevant today. And so I think this question of the hero played by a major, major movie star like Warren Beatty remaining uh, endangered through to the very last frame of the film, that there is no sort of truly heroic moment, that, that that's actually a very bold statement for a film of any sort of Hollywood ilk to, to be making. There's something incredibly powerful about such a hopeless vision of America. What she's saying there, I mean, I really get the part about a film being brave enough to show, as she says, a hopeless vision of America. And and as she says, that's why it still resonates with us. And I think that also goes to the cynical ending of Three Days of the Condor as well, really. Yeah, and that gets us to you know the second lie about heroic journalism or the limits of what it can do to actually provide some accountability. Now, the parallax view is pretty is pretty clear about the impossibility of unraveling conspiracies. You know, killing off a TV journalist and then you know Warren Beatty, a print journalist. Now, something tells me the parallax corporation isn't sweating reporters getting anywhere close to them, and most wouldn't even know where to begin. Exactly. I mean. And Three Days of the Condor, as I said, has that really cynical ending. He thinks he's told the story, but Cliff Robertson knows better. And so, you know, Robert Redford is a CIA employee here, but he's sort of playing almost more of a the role of a, of a journalist. And certainly in the fact that he's a CIA operative in um, analysis instead of being out in the field, I think that that uh, definitely uh, kind of puts this character almost into the category of the journalists that we see in the other two films. Yeah, he's, he's like the, the the spy with the humanities degree and gets to work in a brownstone and uh, and read things, which sounds really fun to me. But I, I that movie kind of spooked me from becoming to want to go back into that world. That's for sure. Um, and what do we? say about all the president's men. You know, they really are heroic journalists. We know that. They, those two inspired generations of others to, to reassert the power of journalism and provide oversight when others fail to do so. 
we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of journalism after 9-11 in our first season. The bottom line is we shouldn't have to rely on reporters to oversee our sprawling national security state. The problem is they seem to be the only ones who seriously try. So here we are, we've arrived at the end of discussing three films about plucky white guys getting to the truth about things. I think we're so jaded by the last decade or so, uh, even more really, of U.S. politics and executive overreach that we look back on something like Watergate and we, we, we kind of go, oh, how quaint. So these films, in a sense, are kind of great time capsules of this moment where the U.S. was grappling with the dented halo of what it saw as its virtue. And so, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Brian, I would recommend all three of these films. I definitely do. And I, and I think most people have seen All the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor is also a more popular thriller than maybe the Parallax View. But as the Karen Kasuma essay convinced me that, you know, it's worth checking out, I think, the, the lesser known of these, which is the Parallax View, and, and connecting it to how it not only influences other films and series like a uh, the Bourne films or even the Homeland and you know some of these kind of more dour and pessimistic or cynical takes on intelligence and uh, our current politics, and to see how these, these 70s thrillers influence them. Or like All the President's Men, not a thriller, but really a docudrama, uh, can still both be a story of triumph and positive conclusions, but also really leave you kind of cold and scared for what's to come because we don't seem to have that same robust journalistic infrastructure to oversee and provide accountability for all the abuses we are, we're experiencing on a daily basis. Um, and so, the, I mean, the better understand today films like these from the 70s are actually a really good primer. And I think that's, you know, that's my advice to our listeners is look, 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 look to a previous generation and you might find some insight into our current mess. Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon.